So in Acts chapter 16, a jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? This jailer knew that he had turned his back on God, he'd rebelled against God, sinned against God, and this jailer was separated from God by his sin, facing judgment from God forever. And so this jailer wants to know, how can I be saved? And Paul tells him very clearly, very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we're saved by faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone, not faith plus works, faith alone, believing in Jesus Christ. But the question that follows up from that is, what must we believe Jesus to do? What promises must we trust in order for our faith to be full, saving faith? Some people say that it's enough just to believe that Jesus will forgive you for your sins by his death. And that is a precious promise, and it is essential that we trust that Jesus will forgive us through his death on the cross. But what we're going to see in today's passage is that there is another promise that must also be a part of saving faith. Not just that we trust Jesus to forgive us through his death, as important as that is, but that we trust Jesus to satisfy us with his presence, to completely, overflowingly satisfy us with his presence. And that will change everything. So let's take a look. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples understand who he is. So let's, let's read these three verses and ask the question, who is Jesus? Verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So get the picture here. Jesus and his disciples are away from the crowds. And as he's with his disciples, he separates a little bit and he is praying by himself. But then he stops and he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? So the crowds are all wondering, who is this person who is teaching with such authority, who's casting out demons, who's healing paralyzed people, who's raising people from the dead? Who is this person? The disciples answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others that you are Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. Others say you're one of the other Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus drills down and says, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. Now, what does that mean? The word Christ is not a name. It's more a title. It's from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one or Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. For thousands of years, God had promised the people of Israel that he would send his Messiah to the earth. And Jesus is this promised Messiah. 
Now, what does that mean? What's so important about the Messiah? Well, the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would do two main things. First of all, the Messiah would free God's people from all oppression and bring justice and peace forever, globally. Beautiful. Here's an example from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. Now, this is a prophecy written about the Messiah about 750 years before Jesus was born. Listen to what Micah prophesied. Verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, remember Bethlehem? O little town of Bethlehem, it's talking about a city there, a little village. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, this is God speaking, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, prophesied from way long ago. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock, God's people, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, God's people, shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Beautiful prophecy. So the Messiah will be come from Bethlehem. He'll be the ruler, the king of Israel. He will shepherd his people like a good, loving, kind shepherd, and they will dwell secure, no longer oppressed, no longer enslaved, and his kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth. And this theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Dozens of passages repeat this Theme. And so think of how encouraging this theme would have been to Israel at this time. They are under the oppression of Rome. Terrible oppression that they're experiencing. But think of how encouraging to know that one day God is going to send the Messiah. And God's people, we will be freed from all oppression and peace and justice will fill the entire earth. Beautiful promise. So that's one theme in the Old Testament about the Messiah. A second theme in the Old Testament is that the Messiah would die to save his people from their sins. He will die to save people from their sins. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. This is written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah says, Surely he, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So, not only will the Messiah free people from oppression, the Messiah will also save people from their sin, the guilt of their sin. Beautiful. So, freeing people from oppression and then forgiving people, dying on the cross to pay for people for their sins. And so for thousands of years, people waited for the Messiah. The nation of Israel longed for the Messiah, prayed for the Messiah to come. And then, one day, Jesus' disciples, Matthew, Andrew, Peter, each at their own different time in their own way, they bumped into Jesus. 
they met Jesus and they were so taken, so captured by Jesus that they left everything and started following him. And they watched Jesus and they listened to Jesus teach and they saw him heal the sick and cast out demons. And then when Jesus on this day, Luke chapter nine, asks them who he is, Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. But then, and Peter's right, but then Jesus does something that's, that's just puzzling. He urges them to tell no one that he's the Messiah. Why? Why does Jesus urge his disciples not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah? The answer is in verses 21 and 22, start in verse 20, just to get the flow of thought. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, and those are strong words. Strictly charged and commanded. In other words, Jesus is saying, men, do not tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. No one. Why? Why wouldn't Jesus want people to know that he's the Messiah? Okay, the answer, I think, is in verse 22. Read verses 21 and 22 together. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, here's the reason why, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What's happened is that most of Israel has ignored or forgotten the idea that the Messiah would save them from sin. They focused only on how the Messiah would free them from political oppression. So if you would have asked your average Israelite in the streets in Jerusalem, what will the Messiah do when he comes? His answer would be, oh, he will free us from the Romans, from oppression. His answer would not have been, he's going to pay for our sins by dying. But see, that creates a problem. Because it's not until the end of history, the end, the far end of history, that Jesus is going to free the world from political oppression. He will do that at the end of history. But first, at this point in time in Luke 9 and the Gospels, he's going to die on the cross to pay for the sins of all those people who will put their trust in him. He will save a people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So here's the problem. If the disciples go around telling everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, then people will be following him for the wrong reason. They will follow him because he's going to free us from Roman oppression. They will not be following him so that they can be forgiven for their sins and come to the joy of knowing God. They will be following him for the wrong reason. And they'll miss the most important reason why Jesus came. And so that's why Jesus urges them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Now, I just have to mention, of course, that only lasts until the day of Pentecost. After Jesus died, rose again, 
ascended into heaven, and then poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up up and says, Jesus is the Messiah. He makes this bold proclamation. So at that point, because people now can see the cross, they can put it all together. But in Luke 9, before the cross, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah because they will follow me for the wrong reasons. Now, while Jesus has been talking to them, a crowd has started to gather around them. And so Jesus starts to teach the crowd and his disciples. And he wants to focus on the right reason, the real reason that people should be following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So let's read verses 23 through 27 and ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Verse 23. Shocking answer. Listen to what he says. And he said to them, he said to all, notice this is all now, this is including the crowd. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his cross, daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Just pause right there. So to come after Jesus, to follow Jesus, we must do two things. First, deny ourselves. That means we must say no to things. Now, some people think that when, when Jesus comes into your life, he's just going to affirm everything about your life. That is not the case. There are things we must say no to. So, what things? I think verse 24, first half, tells us we must deny, say no to, all the ways we've tried to save our lives. We've all been trying to save our lives. Every human being is trying to save his or her life from emptiness, from meaninglessness. And so we do this by trying to fill our emptinesses up with things like money or things like popularity or vacations. We try to fill our lives up with those sorts of things. And Jesus says, to follow me, you must say no to all those ways you've tried to fill up your emptiness. Because if you try to save your life, fill your life in those ways, we will lose our lives now and forever. So first, we must deny ourselves. Second, we must take up our crosses daily. Shocking picture Jesus gives to us. Now, the point is not that you know, we all have our crosses to bear. We all have trials we've got to go through. That is not what Jesus is talking about with this picture. He wants to give us a graphic illustration, an unsettling graphic illustration of what it means to deny ourselves. See, everyone listening to him knew what a cross was. They had seen condemned criminals carrying their crosses to where they would be crucified. Someone carrying a cross is saying, I am going to die. I am going to die. And so what Jesus is calling us to do here is to say every day, I am going to die today to seeking my joy in fame. I'm going to die today to seeking my joy in earthly comforts. I'm going to die today to seeking my joy in more promotions, career, whatever. Wow. Deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow him. Now, this raises a question. If we're supposed to deny 
all those ways we tried to fill up our emptiness, then what should we do about our emptiness? If we should die to all those old ways we used to seek the joy we craved, what should we do about our desires for joy and, and meaning and purpose? Should we just ignore them? That is not Jesus' answer. No, we should not ignore them. The answer is in the second half of verse 24. Read the whole verse to see this. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what saves our lives from emptiness, meaninglessness, is losing our lives for Jesus' sake. Devoting ourselves to gain Jesus. Because see, Jesus Christ, who he is, not, not what he gives, but who he is. Jesus is the only one who can and will fully satisfy our emptiness, our heart emptiness. This is beautiful. See, God has created us with a longing and a craving for meaning and joy and pleasure and he gives us the meaning and joy and pleasure we seek in the person of his son, Jesus. It is only in knowing God through Jesus that our hearts can be filled to overflowing forever. It's the only way. Worshiping Jesus, trusting Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, walking with Jesus, that's where heartfulness, life meaning is found in Jesus Christ. A few months ago, I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and I came upon a paragraph. I just thought, I've got to share this with Grace Church sometime. I think this is the time. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in London in the 1800s, and, and in this sermon, he talks about the kinds of experiences that we can have in knowing Jesus. This is just beautiful. Listen to what he says. There are moments when the Christian feels the charms of earth all broken and his wings are loose. This is figurative language, obviously. His wings are loosed and he begins to fly and up he soars till he forgets earth's sorrows and leaves them far behind. And up he goes till he forgets earth's joys and leaves them like the mountaintops far below. And up, up, up he goes with his Savior full before him, almost in vision beatific, this beautiful, glorious vision of Jesus. His, his heart is full of Christ, and his soul beholds his Savior. See, that's why we deny ourselves. That's why we turn from the old ways of trying to fill our hearts. That's why we take up our crosses and die daily to the old things we used to pursue for our joy. It's because when we lose our lives for Jesus' sake, what we get is Jesus. We're doing this for his sake to get him. And no earthly joy can compare. No earthly joy can come close to comparing with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, for me, to live is Christ, and therefore to die is gain. Amazing. Think about it like this. Our problem as human beings is not that we seek joy too much. 
Our problem is that we settle for too little. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes this. Powerful quote. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So see, what Jesus calls us to deny is lesser joys. What he calls us to die to every day is inferior pleasures, so that we can get the greater joys, the superior pleasure of Jesus Christ. So, listen. Seek your joy in Jesus Christ. Die to those other ways you tried to satisfy yourself. Seek your joys in Jesus through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through God's word. And he will fill you with joy that is incomparable to anything else that the world has ever given you. So superior. And then that joy will, out, will flow out of your heart so that you will live a life of risk taking sacrificial love to do all you can to see lost people saved. You're going to want to relieve suffering wherever you go, especially eternal suffering. That's how you will live the outflow of this heart, which is full of the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And don't worry if that path of risk-taking sacrificial love leads you to the possibility of death, because since Christ is our life, death is gain, gain. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Stunning, shocking, exhilarating, challenging, right? But Jesus has more to say. What happens if we don't lose our lives for Jesus' sake? Verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Now, just think about that. Imagine gaining the whole world. There you are. You've got your multi-million Durham villa um, in Palm Jumeirah there in Dubai. You've got your big old yacht out in front. Fantastic multi-million Durham yacht. You've got a different Bentley for every day of the week. You've got your own private jet to fly you to the Bahamas. You've got all the money and entertainment and pleasures you could possibly imagine. Gain the whole world. And Jesus says, okay, what does that profit you? Well, it sounds like a lot. And sure, for a couple days, weeks, months, it's like you could try out all your new toys, but you will be left empty. None of those things will satisfy you. None of those things will fill you. So you will lose and forfeit yourself in two ways. One is you will still be empty and unsatisfied. 
And then two, you will face God's judgment forever. Since you have rejected his gift of life, all satisfying joy in his son, the Messiah, Jesus. Then in verse 26, Jesus wants to point out one particular way that we can be tempted to try to gain the world. It's by gaining popularity and lots of friends. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man, Jesus, be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So picture this scene. You're there with some friends. Maybe at a Starbucks having coffee, talking together. And the topic of Christianity comes up. And someone says, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? Now, if at that moment you feel ashamed to admit it, embarrassed to admit it, what's going on inside your heart? Why would you feel ashamed? Your shame shows that you are seeking your joy in friends, in, in popularity, in impressing them. You're seeking your joy in them, not in Jesus. You're not devoting your life, losing your life to gaining Jesus, the all-satisfying joys of Jesus. You're, you're devoting your life to gaining the puny little joys of impressing friends. That's why you're feeling shame. You're not denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, losing your life to gain Jesus. So then what will happen? At the end of history, Jesus will return and he will come back in all his glory and all the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And everyone will see him. And everyone will see that all glory, all worth, all beauty, majesty, nobility, it's all in the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is superior to everything. He is the infinite value of the, of the universe. Nothing is more glorious or majestic than Jesus in his love. I mean, think about his death on the cross. Jesus' love, Jesus' majesty, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, Jesus' compassion and mercy. Nothing is more glorious than Jesus. And because you were ashamed of him, him, this being in whom is all glory, because you were ashamed of him, when Jesus comes back, he will be ashamed of you. And he will say, you are not one of my people. I never saved you. I never knew you. You've not been saved by me. And that will be a terrifying moment for you because you had not denied yourself. You had not taken up your cross and died to the old ways of seeking to fill your heart. You had not been losing your life, devoting your life for the joy of gaining Jesus. But let's switch the illustration. Imagine that you have been devoting your life to the joy of Jesus, the all-satisfying joy of Jesus. And there you are in Starbucks with a group of friends and the conversation turns to Christianity and someone asks, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And you, you, you would smile and say, yes, Jesus Christ means everything to me. No shame, just joy, joy. 
And in that case, when Jesus returns in all of his glory, shining with glory, splendor, majesty, when he sees you, he will smile, he will be delighted, he will praise you, he will say, you are mine, I have saved you, you belong to me. And that will be a, a glorious moment because you had been denying yourself. You've been taking up your cross and dying to the old ways of seeking to fill your heart. You had been losing your life to gain Jesus. You've been devoting your life to gain the joys of Jesus. You're his. You're saved forever. Okay, so we're asking the question, and Jesus is answering the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be saved and to follow Jesus. And Jesus says it means to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and lose your life to gain the joy of knowing Jesus. That's what it means. It means we, we turn from what we used to trust to satisfy us. All those other things we used to trust to satisfy us, we turn from those things and we turn to trusting Jesus to fill us, to satisfy us forever now and forever. Now, I hope you see what this shows is that saving faith does not just mean trusting that Jesus will completely pay for our sins. Oh, it does mean that. That is an essential part of saving faith. But saving faith also must mean trusting Jesus to completely satisfy our hearts in himself. Saving faith means both trusting Jesus to forgive us, and trusting Jesus to satisfy us. Because what it means to be saved and follow Jesus, according to this passage, is to lose our lives to gain Jesus. Devote our lives to the, gaining the joy of knowing Jesus because we trust that he is our all-satisfying treasure. That's saving faith. But now Jesus has one more question he wants to answer. How can we know that Jesus will satisfy us more than anything else. How can we know that? And he answers that question in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's some here who will not die until they've already seen the kingdom of God. Now to see the kingdom of God means to see the king, Jesus himself, and his reign, his beauty, his glory, his majesty. And Jesus is saying that we can see the kingdom of God now, in this life. We don't need to wait until we die. We can see it now. And when we do, we will experience, feel, know that Jesus is the infinitely all-satisfying treasure, far infinitely superior to anything else that the world can offer. So how can we see the kingdom of God? I think Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, he's talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which means that when we are born again, we will be able to see the kingdom of God. So what's being born again? When, when God saves us through Jesus, 
He causes us to be born again. He births, supernaturally births in us a new heart, a new nature, which trusts Jesus, loves Jesus, turns to Jesus. And, and when we do trust Jesus, love Jesus, turn to Jesus, we will start to have times when we see the kingdom of God and the king, especially Jesus in all of his glory, not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts. And when we do, we will know, we will feel, we will have a firsthand experience that Jesus and his kingdom is worth everything. He is my all-satisfying treasure. He is my prize. He is my love. He is my joy. We will know that by experience. Now, here's an example of how Jonathan Edwards experienced seeing the kingdom of God and the king. Jonathan Edwards was a missionary to the American Indians in the 1730s in the U.S. Here's what he wrote in his journal. I was riding in the woods for my health in 1737 and got down from my horse so that I could walk and meditate on God's word and pray. As I did, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator, go-between, between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension, his, his lowering of himself to, to save people. The person of Christ appeared incredibly excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions. I felt a passion to be, I don't know how else to express it, completely emptied and to be full of Christ alone. Now, this is a powerful, dramatic experience. I've never experienced anything at this level, but I wanted to read this to you to give you a, a taste, to, to give you a, a sense of what can be possible. And let me tell you, even, even just, if this is a, 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 a waterfall, even just a drop from this waterfall is infinitely more satisfying than anything that the world has to offer. And when we're born again, and we, we seek God's face in prayer, in the word, in worship, in fellowship, he will give us times where we see the kingdom of God and feel and experience the glory of the king. And we will know, yes, Jesus Christ, you are my all-satisfying treasure. For me, to live is Christ. And to die will just mean gain for me. So here's what I want to urge you to do, based on this passage from God's Word, based on this teaching from Jesus the Messiah. Trust Jesus to pay for all of your sins by his death on the cross. Trust him. He will. He'll forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. And trust Jesus to completely satisfy you in himself. Trust him. Then ask Jesus, Show me your glory. Pour out your spirit upon me. And open up the scriptures. Pray over God's word, fellowship, worship. And as you do, 
He will show you his glory. He will completely satisfy you in himself again and again and again and again. And then that joy will overflow from your life so that you will live a life of risk-taking, sacrificial love for people all around you, especially those who are lost and who are on their way to hell. You will pour your life out for those because he is pouring his joy into you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Die to those old ways you used to fill and satisfy your heart. And lose your life for Jesus' sake. Devote yourself to gaining Jesus. You will never regret doing that. Not now and not forever. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that right now you would take this word and that you would bring to our hearts and our minds exactly what we need to be hearing this moment. Lord, those who have never bent the knee before Jesus, trusting Jesus to forgive them, trusting that Jesus is the one who will satisfy them in himself, now, Lord, let them bend their knee. Now let them see the the emptiness that's in the world all around them and the fullness that's in Jesus, the Savior, the treasure. And I pray that they would turn from what they used to trust and trust Jesus to forgive them, to fill them, and that you would do that now, I pray. And Lord, for those of us who have been following you, help us see that saving faith is not just trusting Jesus for forgiveness, as beautiful as that is, but saving faith is also trusting Jesus to satisfy us in himself. And so then let, let that trust move us to lose our lives to gain Jesus, to live our lives to the hilt, to know Jesus, behold Jesus, fellowship with Jesus. And Lord, let that joy then release us to walk in love sharing the good news, caring for those around us, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.